Anyway, let's get on to James chapter 5 tonight. James chapter 5. By the way, reaching back to last week, I left you with a couple statements that I hope you remembered throughout the week. If God had a refrigerator, what would be on it? Your picture, that's right. And if God had a wallet, your photo would be in it as well. Don't forget that. That's how much God loves you. That's right. That's right. When we come into James chapter 5, let's remember where we left off in James chapter 4. James chapter 4 was reminding us of how fragile life is, how uncertain life is, how brief life is, how short life is, all of that, and how we should live life accordingly. It goes back to what Moses wrote in Psalm 90 verse 12 when he says, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom, or as my translation says, remind me of my mortality so that I can live wisely. And that's sort of what the end of James chapter 4 is all about, getting the most out of every day because life is uncertain. But when we come into James chapter 5, the thing that James wants to emphasize here as he starts out this chapter is there are some things we do know. There are some things that we are absolutely certain about. I mean, there's much in life we're not certain about, but there's some things that God has told us are part of the future that we are absolutely certain about because God has said it, it's going to happen, and therefore that should also change the way we live our lives. One statement I want to make before we dive into it tonight also is this, because this sort of envelops the whole passage tonight. It's a statement I'd like you to think about for a while. Christian faith, our Christian faith, would not make any sense if there was no eternity. Our Christian faith, if, if this was all there was, if there was no eternity, then our Christian faith and the principles upon which we live would make no sense if there was no eternity. Think about that tonight as we go down through this passage because you'll notice he starts out in chapter 5 the same way we started out in the last week's passage in chapter 4 verse 13. Come now. And he's wanting us to come, use our brains, engage our brains, and begin to reason through something and think through something. Again, remember, God wants us to use our minds. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And just like we saw last week, the prophet Isaiah says, Come, let's reason this together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they can be as white as snow. Let's think about this. So he's asking us once again to think through what he's about to tell us and to reason this through and to come to the conclusion, isn't this? Right, doesn't this make sense based upon the revelation that God has given to us? And he's talking here tonight to a specific group of people within the church. He's talking to those who are pretty well off as far as materially, earthly standards goes. He says, come now, you rich. Now again, one interpretation of scripture, but many applications. So rich is a pretty general term. So I'm going to let you make application in your life and and how you want to look at this passage. But he here is talking to us who from a world standard perspective have more than most. And here's what he's reminding 
these folks of that he's writing to. Because, again, let's remember something. The Bible says it's not wrong to be wealthy. It's not wrong to have material things. It's not wrong to enjoy life. As long as those things do not control us, as long as we're not wrapping our lives around those things and living for those things and putting our hope in those things rather than in God. Which is what it looks like if you study this overall passage, it looks like that the folks he's talking to here in these first six verses have used their worldly blessings have used their material wealth, have used their riches in a wrong way. They've looked at it wrong. They've come at it from the wrong perspective. And he says, you realize that there's coming a day where that's all going to be reversed because there is an eternity. And and if you're not using this properly, if you're not looking at this properly, it's all going to be reversed one day because notice he says, weep and cry. And literally that word there means shriek, an astonishment. Almost a gasp as if they get to a point somewhere in history where they realize, in a sense, they've been living life upside down. Or where they've been doing it all wrong all these years. They thought that this was what life was all about. You know, uh, he who dies with the most toys wins type of philosophy of life. And I, I thought that this was all what it was about. And they're going to come to some point in history where they realize that all that they live for, all that they strive for, all that they put their energy and time and effort in wasn't really what the most important thing was. Weep and cry aloud over the miseries that are coming on you. And isn't it interesting? Most people would say, well, even if you don't feel like you are rich, you'd certainly like to be rich. And, and you know, we think that, you know, wealth and, and, and money can't maybe, you know, do everything, but it, it can certainly help. And, and, and yet James is almost looking at people who are well-to-do is, is almost a curse and with scorn rather than saying, yeah, I want what they've got, which is what most people in the world would be like. Totally opposite of the way James is coming at this. But again, remember why he's coming at it this way. There's eternity out there. And so what we have on this earth, we've got to always know that life is uncertain, but there are some things that are certain, and that's that eternity out there that's looming. And we've got to live as if we know that eternity is coming. So he says, though you may be comfortable, though you may think you've got everything you could have, Though though you may even get to the point, he says, where you believe that your money, your wealth, your power, your influence can pretty much fix anything that you will ever come across in life, you got to understand something. If that's the way you're looking at life and that's the way you're looking at your valuables and your treasures and your possessions, you're going to be very much surprised one day. The word misery also is a very interesting word he uses here in verse 1. It's a word in the original language that speaks about being hardened. Isn't it interesting that when you do think about folks who maybe really have a lot materially, that sometimes, not all the time, sometimes, they're very hardened to people who don't have very much. Sometimes, 
people who give are actually, or people who have the heart of giving and the attitude of giving and being generous and sharing what they have, sometimes are the people that really don't have it. And the people that have more to give sometimes are actually hardened by all that they have. And they have very little sympathy or empathy towards others who don't have as much as they have. That's implied here in chapter 5, verse 1. It sort of, again, paints for us a kind of picture that we can get in our mind, a kind of attitude that we can get in our mind about the kind of people, the attitude of people that he's talking about here. But it reminds all of us, no matter how we we've got to be careful how we manage our resources. We've got to be careful because God calls us stewards. And, and we are managing all that he has given to us, and we will give an account of how we have managed it one day. Notice he says one thing about putting all your, your thoughts in riches. He says your riches have rotted. In other words, you can't take it with you, and eventually it all wears out. Your clothing has become moth-eaten. And your gold and silver have rusted. Now, obviously, gold and silver can't literally rust, but the word here also means corroded. And gold and silver certainly can tarnish over time. And their rust will be a witness against you. Why? It will consume your flesh like fire. And the picture that James is simply painting is, as God looks down on the earth, he sees people who all they are living for is... The buck, the dollar, the the bottom line, material things, and not from the eternal perspective, from just the here and now perspective. And we we can roll over this passage every which way we want to, and we can try to say that James chapter 5 is talking to non-Christians, but my friends, the context of James is he's talking here to Christians. He's talking to people who at least profess to have a relationship with God, but they are looking at their resources and their material goods and all that God has blessed them with, not from an eternal perspective, but from an earthly temporal perspective. And and it's consuming them. They're living their whole life being consumed by these things. It reminds us many times that you may know of somebody that, you know, they've got a lot of what we would consider the, the world's offerings, but it's almost like it's got them too, that, that it's managing them as much as they have it. I mean, I knew a gal back in my hometown, she had these jewels and this jewelry that was so expensive, she locked it up afraid somebody was ever going to take it and she never got to wear it anyway. And you're thinking to yourself, You've got all this expensive stuff and yet you walk around in fear and you can't even wear it because you're afraid somebody's going to take it. And so all of a sudden all this stuff that seems to be really positive ends up being a negative because now we're all, you know, afraid about what might happen to it and if we might lose it. That's sort of the picture that James is painting here. And notice here's the bottom line, the end of verse 3. It is in the last days that you have hoarded treasure. It really gets to the mindset, to to the philosophy of life behind what these folks have that James is addressing. That God is saying, if I live life with an eternal perspective, I'm a steward. 
And God is not against me living comfortably, enjoying life and having things. But God also, from that eternal perspective, wants me to be a channel or a conduit of blessing to others. And if God does bless me, God wants me in turn to bless others. Whether that's spiritually, emotionally, or physically with material things. God doesn't want me to hoard what I have. God wants me to invest in what I have for eternal things. It's exactly what Jesus said when he says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Invest in eternal things. If we truly believe eternity is coming, if, if we don't know what life, we don't have a certainty about life, but we do have a certainty about eternity is coming, and how we live on this earth is going to affect eternity, then isn't it better to use what God has given us rather than hoarding it? It also, again, paints the mind, the picture here, we're going to go down through here, that these folks are pretty selfish, pretty self-indulgent, that, that what they have, they have that philosophy, you know, I got this, I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps, and I worked hard for all this, so it's mine. And I'm not going to use it or share it or invest it to anyone else. It's, it's mine and it's all for me. And God says, really? Is that really how you want it to pass and be evaluated? Because there's eternity out there. It's not just about the here and now. Notice, verse 4. God says through James, look. The pay you have held back from the workers who mowed your fields cries out against you. So now, obviously, he's talking to folks who not only are wealthy, but probably owned their own businesses, had employees underneath of them. And notice what God says. God says, oh, besides running the universe, besides keeping all the planets and stars and all of that in place, I had time to notice what you got paid, and how much you paid your workers. It shows us the detail that God pays attention to our lives. That, that if you're in a job where your employer is not paying you a fair wage, Bible says God notices that. He pays attention. So many times we think God is so big, he's so far removed, he doesn't see what goes on. And yet over and over in scripture, the Bible reminds us our God is a God of great detail in what goes on on the earth. Jesus even said, a bird can't fall from a tree on earth and God doesn't know about it. And so here, an amazing statement is being made by James. That God knows what people are being paid and whether it is fair and whether it is generous based on what work they do. And he notices even what they do. That in this passage, they were mowing the fields of their employers. And they were crying out because it wasn't fair. It wasn't just. Their employers weren't giving them a fair wage. And here again, it goes back to James is saying, what about eternity? Not only are you living as if all there is is this earth, and you're pretty selfish with what you've got, 
But in order to pad your pocket even more, you're withholding wages that you should be giving to those who are working for you. Shame on you, James says. That's not living life with eternity in view. That's living life as if this is all there is and when I die, that's it. And notice, the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. God hears our cries. God hears the cries of injustice. God heard the cries of his people when they were in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. God hears our prayers. He hears our cries. He knows intimately every detail of what is going on down here on earth. And he understands the injustices and the extortion and all of that that goes on. He sees it all. You and I, Even as sinful human beings, though Christians, sinful human beings, we are heartbroken many times when we hear about the way the world is and and the way people in the world treat each other and the way people are even being treated in their own country and here and there. Can you imagine a holy God, how it breaks the heart of God and grieves the heart of God to look down and see how people are treating one another? But James also is reminding us at the end of verse 4, don't forget he's the Lord of hosts. (laughs) And and he has the hosts of heaven at his disposal. And and the Lord of hosts doesn't just imply angelic hosts. It, It implies that God has a host of anything around him that he can use to change the situation very quickly. In fact, Keep your finger there in the book of James and go back to a very obscure Old Testament book, the book of Amos. Amos is one of what we call the 12 minor prophets that are found at the end of the Old Testament. The major prophets are the big book prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. When you get to Daniel, keep on turning right. And when you get to Daniel, you will come to the first minor prophet, Hosea. You will come then to Joel, And then the third minor prophet is Amos. Now the reason I wanted to take you here is not just because this passage of scripture supports and parallels what we're talking about. It's Amos chapter 6. But I think it's good, especially in places like the mine, where we touch on some books and we show people where some things are and we just touch on it for a little bit. The reason why these 12 prophets at the end of the Old Testament are called minor prophets is not because what they're saying is minor. It's not because their message is minor. It's just because in relationship to the bigger prophetic books of the Old Testament, like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, like Ezekiel, like Daniel, they're much shorter. But their message and what is contained in them are just as important as anything contained anywhere else in the Bible. If you ever get a chance, do a study of the 12 minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament. And you'll notice not much has changed because back when God was talking to his people, Israel, all the way back in Amos chapter 6, notice what he writes here. It reminds us of the kind of of people that James is writing to in James chapter 5. Woe to those who live in ease in Zion. To those who feel secure on Mount Samaria, they think of themselves as the elite class of the best nation. The family of Israel looks to them for leadership. 
They say to the people, journey over to Calna and look at it. Then go from there to Hamath Rabbah. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are they superior to our two kingdoms? Is their territory larger than yours? We're the best of the best, right? You refuse to believe a day of disaster will come. But you establish a reign of violence. They lie around on beds decorated with ivory and sprawl out on their couches. They eat lambs from the flock and calves from the middle of the pen. They sing to the tune of stringed instruments like David. They invent musical instruments. They drink wine from sacrificial bowls and pour the very best oils on themselves. Yet they are not concerned over the ruin of Joseph. In other words, God is saying, you're living in the lap of luxury. You're indulging yourself. You've got the best of the best, and spiritually, you're bankrupt. You're committing idolatry. You have walked away from me, and the Lord of hosts is about ready to rise up and act. Notice verse 7. Therefore, they will now be the first to go into exile, and the religious banquets where they sprawl on couches will end. The sovereign Lord confirms this oath by his very own life. You see, when the foreign nations marched in to, say, Jerusalem, the poor Jewish people that were poor and destitute and had raggedy clothes and were so thin that you you could see their ribs sticking out, foreigners didn't want to have anything to do with them. But when the foreign armies came into Jerusalem, they went after the wealthy They went after those who were clothed very well, those who lived in the best houses. And they were the ones, like God said, who were going to be the first ones to go because if they were going to plunder anything, the poor didn't have anything to take. But the rich in Israel did. And they had lived in ease far too long. And they had misused what God gave them. And they did not use it to help anyone else. They used it to live indulgently. And they forgot God and they forgot others. Notice as you go on in the book of Amos, if you go over to chapter 8, just very briefly, and then we'll go back to James. Amos chapter 8, pick it up in verse 4. Listen to this, you who trample the needy and do away with the destitute in the land. You even say, when will the new moon festival be over so we can sell grain? When will the Sabbath end so we can open up the grain bins? In other words... Even going to church, even the religious festivals, even, you know, the, the observances spiritually was, was a bore to these people because their mindset was on, how can I just make some more money? And I'm, I'm losing money by being at church right now. Let's get this service over with so I can go out there and make more money. That was the mindset in Israel at the time of Amos. We are eager, eager notice, verse 5, to sell less for a higher price. Gee, you see, that didn't start in our lifetime, did it? And to cheat the buyer with rigged scales. We're eager to trade silver for the poor, a pair of sandals for the needy. We want to mix in some chaff with the grain. And the Lord confirms this oath by the arrogance of Jacob. I swear I will never forget all you have done. Wow. Eternity's coming. And people are living, even those who claim to be the people of God, as if there really isn't an eternity, even though in their head they say there is, they're not living like it. And so James here is giving us, back in James, a warning. 
In fact, if you go back to James 5, look at verse 5. You have lived indulgently, again, all for yourself, and luxuriously on the earth. And that word luxuriously literally means a soft life. God says you've lived a soft life. And so because you've lived a soft life, notice what he says at the end of verse 5. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Wow. You see, God doesn't want us to have fat hearts. He wants us to have strong hearts. We're going to get to that in verse 8 of chapter 5. But I love the contrast in James 5 between the fattened hearts in verse 5 and the strengthened hearts in verse 8. In a sense, he's saying our hearts have gotten fat because our life has gotten soft. It's just like the poor turkeys. Oh, they're coming to give me more to eat. They're coming to give me more to eat. And all they were doing was just fattening him up for the day of slaughter. And God says, when you and I don't keep eternity in view, and we go after things that consume us, like the folks he's talking to here, those things will never help us come eternity. They're only good for the here and now. And notice he goes on to say in verse 6 that they have used their power, their wealth, and their influence even to seep into the court and justice system. That's key by the word condemned. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person although he does not resist you. And I believe what James is simply saying here, just like in our lifetime, that one of the frustrations is we see the injustices many times because in the world today as it is, the wealthy who have more are able sometimes to buy off a judge or bribe this and and use their wealth and buy the best lawyers and buy the best team of lawyers. And, And here's this poor person over here. They don't even have enough money to get a lawyer. And and yet it seems so unfair. And and even the Bible says that that the poor can't even resist. There's no defense, right? Where's the justice? James is saying, ah, but there's an eternity. See, the Christian faith doesn't make any sense if there's no eternity. Because now he begins to sort of switch the theme and he moves from how we handle things and how we look at things on earth to the fact of how do we deal with the seeming injustices and things that we see around it. If if there is no eternity, if God is not going to set things right one day, then the Christian faith doesn't make any sense. And that's why he goes on in verse 7 to say, so be patient, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's return. In other words, even if justice is never seen on earth, friends, there's an eternity. God will set the record straight one day. And that's why we've got to have patience. That's why we've got to look forward. You see, the word patience in the James 5, 7 is the Greek word macrothumia. It literally means long-fused. Now, in my warped mind, it takes me back to the days when I watched The Roadrunner and Coyote. And the coyote would get these things from the Acme company to try to blow up the roadrunner. And I never understood, even as a kid, 
why does it have to have a fuse a mile long? Because by the time it got that far, obviously the coyote ended up blowing up rather than the roadrunner. And, and yet, when I picture what God is saying here, that really is what he's saying. He says, we've got to approach life as believers with a long fuse and with a long view. We cannot approach life especially this uncertain, fragile life, this short life that we have, with a short view. We've got to approach everything that we see, everything that we take in, everything that we touch, everything that we come in contact with, every person, every conversation, with a long-term view, because there is an eternity. And God wants us to live every day of this uncertain, fragile, gifted, short life, Not only recognizing that, but also knowing, but there is an eternity coming. And God wants us then to take that certain future of eternity into account by the way we move and live and do everything that we do in life. Whether it's in regards to material things, how we treat other people or whatever, God always wants us to take eternity in view. In fact, I don't want to take the time to do it tonight, but there's a great passage in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, where Jesus talks about the rich man and Lazarus. And and the main point of that passage is simply this. And listen, please, I want to stop here too and say, God is not against people who are wealthy. God is not against rich people. God is simply saying, it's how you look at your wealth. It's how you look at your riches. It's how you use it or don't use it. Are you putting your hope in those things or are you putting your hope in God? It's all about perspective. It's not about what we have or what we don't. It's does it have us or do we manage it for the glory of God and invest it? So Jesus said that this beggar lived his whole life one way on earth and the rich man lived a whole other way. But when it came to eternity, guess what? The roles were reversed. And as I read and studied that passage, I was reminded of something that was said to me a long time ago, which was, Jeff, all the struggle and all the heartache and all the pain and all of that is the only hell that you as a Christian will ever know. See, no matter how bad it gets on earth, with eternity as our long view No matter how bad it gets on earth, I've got to remember, this is the only hell I'll ever go through. And for those who push away Christ and don't want anything to do with Christ and simply say, no, thank you, God, I don't want Christ, this is the only heaven they will ever know. That's the long, that's looking at life from that long-term perspective. And that's what James wants us to see. That's why he says, be patient, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's return. Yeah, there's things that aren't right on the earth. God gets that. God understands it. God gave everybody a free will. People aren't always going to treat each other the way they should. But there is coming a day where justice will come. And that's why God even says, we have as Christians the freedom to forgive And give place to God's wrath, Romans chapter 12, because I don't have to worry about trying to get that person back or whatever and take matters into my own hands. I know God's going to take care of it one day. But if I don't have that long view, 
If I don't have that eternal perspective, somehow I feel like even if they go through life and get away with it, somehow they're going to get away with it. And I've lost the long-term view as a Christian. And God says, don't ever lose the long-term view. You and I, God wants us to run the race of life, always keeping the last lap of the race in mind. The last lap of the race. Not where we are right now, but where we're going to be one day. And that requires patience. It requires, because God isn't going to set everything right as soon as it happens. That's not what this is all about right here and now. But God does promise us there will come a day where I will set things right. Notice he, com- he wants us to be like a farmer, verse 7. Think of how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the ground and is patient for it until it receives the early and lat- latter rains. And this is important to, to the Jews especially because they were an agrarian society. But even more than that, God forced them to live by faith. And here's why. If you go back to Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 11, if you want to turn there sometime. When God brought them out of Egypt, he says, here's going to be the difference as you do your crops as farmers. He says, in Egypt, there was irrigation. There was the Nile River. All you had to do to get water was go over a trench where the water was, kick a little dirt out of the way, and flow your water right into your field. And there was no faith involved in farming in Egypt because it was all irrigated by the Nile River. But when I bring you to this land, this land is so dry that it sucks up the water when it gets there. And so you're going to have to farm totally by faith and dependence on me. You're not going to be able to irrigate. You're not going to be able to just sit there and, and, and do your gardens and, and think that somehow I don't have to, you know, I can control this and I don't have to look to God. God, in a sense, was forcing his people to depend on him for the rains so that their crops would go. Because God wanted to teach his people to look to him. Not to them. Not to this. Not to look to him to supply their needs. And so this was a powerful illustration for the Jewish folks. Notice also in verse 8, you also be patient and strengthen your hearts for the Lord's return is near. God wants us to strengthen our hearts. God wants our hearts to be strong because God understands that there's going to be things that happen to us We might be like the person described in the earlier part of chapter 5 where we're working, 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 and we're not getting a fair wage. And we're crying out to God, God, this isn't fair. And somehow we're thinking God's just forgotten about us. And then we begin to, you know, go into that whole misthinking because we let the lies of Satan and the lies of others and the lies we're telling ourselves to invade our brain And we go off assassinating the character of God and not realizing what the Bible says. God says, I'm not going to guarantee you that I'm going to change your circumstances, but I will strengthen you to deal with your circumstances. And one day, one day, if not before that day, there's an eternity coming and it will all be settled on that day. So be patient, strengthen your hearts. See, God wants his people to be strong. How do we strengthen our hearts? I want to give you a couple verses. Keep your finger in James chapter 5 and go to the book right left of James, the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews chapter 12. No, is it 12? I've forgotten where it is now. Yes, chapter 13. Wow, 
Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9. Hebrews 13, 9. Do not be carried away by all sorts of strange teachings. Be stable, be strong, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by what? Grace. Not ritual meals, which have never benefited those who participated in them. Our hearts are strengthened by God's grace. And the Bible says God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. When I humble myself before God, and I'm depending on him, and I'm looking to him, God will supply grace, and it is through his grace that my heart is strengthened. So when James says, strengthen your heart, he's also telling us, accept the grace of God when he pours it out in your life. Receive the grace of God, because as Christians, we can resist the grace of God. We can reject it. We can push it away. And James is saying, strengthen your hearts by God's grace. But also, we can even strengthen our hearts another way. Go back to the book of Colossians. We can strengthen our hearts through prayer, which is also a a form of humility and dependence on God. As I pray, I'm reminding uh, myself that I can't deal with this on my own. And Paul has a great prayer for the Colossian Christians where he himself is praying for them to be strengthened. And I want you to see tonight the connection between being strengthened and between the patience and the uh, perseverance and the endurance that they need. I'm just going to pick it up at the beginning of the prayer in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason we also, from the day we heard about you, have not ceased praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may live worthily of the Lord and please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good deed, growing in the knowledge of God. Here it is, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. In other words, Paul's saying, God is all-powerful. I'm praying that you will be strengthened by all the power that God has. And God has all power. So that means all power is available to us through God. And here's why Paul is praying specifically for them to be strengthened or to grow in power. Notice, for the display of all patience and steadfastness. Oh, and by the way, joyfully. In other words, I don't want you to just be this Christian who, I'm just hanging on, God. I'm just hanging on. Really? Wow. No, he wants us to be strengthened in our heart, in our inmost being, so that we can endure and be steadfast and persevere and be patient and live life with the long-term view and not let all the little ticky-tack things that people do to us throughout the day and all the the little snubs and hurts and all of that blow up our life, but just move on with life and and keep the big picture and keep the long-term view. And even when people hurt us deeply, realize that, you know what, we've just got to forgive them and move on and recognize that we're going to just put them in the Lord's hands and God is going to mete out whatever justice and retribution needs to be meted out. I'm moving on. I'm getting rid of that weight in my life and I'm going to live my life with all of that and I'm going to do it joyfully joyfully yeah that's the way you want to talk about learning how to pray as a Christian sometimes do a study of the Paul uh, the the prayers of Paul in the New Testament there's a guy who gets right down to it that's what he prayed for for Christians wow pretty pretty good prayers so that's what James is saying 
back in James chapter 5, verse 8. And then I want to direct your attention back there. Notice, because this is misunderstood. He says, for the Lord's return is near, as if that's to give us some encouragement. And most Christians are like, whoa, 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 whoa. The Bible always tells me the Lord's return is near. Wait a minute. Uh, It's been 2,000 years. And they keep saying it's near. Misunderstanding of the word near. The word near doesn't mean like, oh yeah, tomorrow. It could. It does mean imminent. It does mean sudden. It means that Jesus Christ could come. Listen, there is nothing biblically that has to happen before Jesus comes. Jesus' coming for his people is the next event on God's prophetic calendar and has been for the last couple of thousand years. There's nothing that needs to happen. So every generation of Christians, listen, when the trumpet sounds, my friend, boom, it's near. It's not like it's going to take Jesus a million years to travel down from heaven and get here. You know, it's not like how we look at space travel. Oh, if we want to go to Mars, you know, we've got to put our astronauts to sleep because it's such a long drive there. It's going to take them so long. Jesus is going to step out of heaven, and he's going to be on earth in the next second. Boom, that's it. That's how near it is. And when that happens, my friends, everything's going to change. You see, everything's going to change. And that's the encouragement. Yeah, you should be encouraged. That's the encouragement that James wants to give to Christians. Folks, it's not always going to be like this. And, and, and you and I have to live life with that view in mind at all times. That when the Lord comes, things are going to change. They are going to change. And they're going to change for all of eternity. And whatever we went through down here on this earth is the only hell as a Christian I will ever know. So I've got to keep that in mind as I live my life and live with that long-term view and be patient because God will set the record straight. Notice in verse 9, when I begin to think I'm getting a raw deal, when I begin to think things aren't turning out my way, guess what I do? I start taking it out on others. And James is warning us in verse 9, if we don't keep that long-term view, then we're going to start biting and devouring each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and destroying the unity of the body. And he says, don't do it. Don't be tempted to go there. If we're settled in Christ and we're centered in Christ and we know that Christ is going to settle all accounts one day and make everything right one day, even if it's not right now, then I don't have to get all churned up on the inside and start biting other people's heads off, which is why he says in verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters. So that you may not be judged. God will hold us accountable for treating our brothers and sisters in Christ in a wrong matter. And notice he says again, see the judge stands before the gates. It's like the doors are ready to open up and here he comes. And when he comes, wow. It's going to be a whole different world than what it was before Jesus stepped through those gates. Now many people, when they get to this point, say, well, wait a minute. Jesus the judge? Yeah. Jesus is the judge. Keep your finger there in James. Go back to a very important verse of Scripture in the Gospel of John. This is something a lot of Christians have never maybe even seen. The Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 22. Very important verse in theology. John writes in John 5, 22, Furthermore, the Father does not judge anyone. 
but has assigned all judgment to who? The Son. This is where the Jewish folks really got messed up and had a stumbling block. Because the Old Testament always predicted there would be the lion and there would be the lamb. And they liked the lion part. Because they were always under oppression. And they thought when Messiah came, he was going to be that lion that was going to overthrow Rome. And he was going to set up his kingdom. And it was going to be okay for Israel. And they forgot about the lamb part. Well, it's almost reversed today. That we have Christians who are so focused on the lamb part. And hey, we're all thankful that Jesus is the lamb of God who took away our sin. Amen? We are thankful for the Lamb, but we've also got to remember that He is also characterized in the Bible as the Lion from the tribe of Judah. And when He comes back the next time, He's not coming back to deal with sin and die on the cross and humble Himself. He's coming back as the King of kings and Lord of lords, my friends. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that one day... Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, my friends. That's what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. So the Father isn't going to judge. The Son's going to judge. And here's why the Son is going to judge. Because it's all about, what's my relationship to you? That's why Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew when he was showing people about what would happen in the last day. He said, many will come to me in that day. And they'll say, well, Lord, we did this and we did that. And and Jesus will say, I never knew you. Because he's the one that knows whether we really have a personal relationship with him. I mean, Jesus either knows we have a personal relationship or we don't. He's going to be the one to judge, you see. Because he knows whether our heart is truly his or not. Whether we've ever made that commitment or not. Or whether we're just playing a game and false confession or whatever it is. So Jesus is the one that's going to judge whether we have a relationship with him. But if you have a relationship with him, my friends, you know. The Bible says you know. Because if you're one of his sheep, Jesus even said in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, they know my voice, and they follow me. And you know whether he's your shepherd or not. That's why David wrote in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Here's why what I can now rely on. Well, David seems pretty presumptuous, right? No, David just had a relationship with God and knew that God was his shepherd. So Jesus is going to be the one to judge. And the judge is standing before the gates just waiting for the right time to come. We know that 2 Peter tells us, why is he delaying? Well, he's delaying, first of all, to allow other people to hear about Christ. He's also delaying to get the church to start taking care of business. See, I I believe that's one of the reasons why God is delaying is because he wants his church to take care of business and to rise up and truly be a light and salt in the world in which we live. Notice in verse 10 of James chapter 5, if you go back there, he uses the example of the prophets and of Job. The prophets were put on a pedestal by the Jewish folks. I mean, they were heroes because of all they endured. You think about somebody like Jeremiah that was 
tortured and, and, and stoned and thrown in a muddy pit and hung up and all kinds of stuff. And yet, man, he just couldn't stop preaching. In fact, even when he said, I'm trying to talk myself out of it, but then it becomes this fire in my bones and in my belly. And I, I just, I just got to give people the word of God. And every time he opened up his mouth, they tortured him. Like, well, this is good, you know. But he endured. He kept on doing it because he had the call of God on his life. And guess what else? He had the long-term view. Even if nobody listened to him, if everybody rejected him, he had the long-term view. All he cared about was being faithful to God and faithful to what God called him to, regardless of how people responded or not. So that's why he uses the prophets, verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name. Think of how we regard as blessed those who have endured. You've heard of Job's endurance. And you've seen the Lord's purpose, that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Now, if you ever read the book of Job, most people, at least early on in the book, would conclude God is not a God of compassion and mercy. How could God ever let that happen to Job? Lost everything he ever owned in one day. Lost all ten children in one day. How could God do that? And the Bible ends the book of Job by saying that the second half of Job's life was even better than the first. Because God didn't allow any of that to happen, to destroy Job or defeat Job in any way, but to actually make Job stronger. And to give Job an insight into God and into the ways of God that he would have never had had he never went through the pain that he went through in the book of Job. And when the Bible says God is a God of compassion, the word compassion literally means moved. God is moved. I mean, all the way back to what James says. James says God is moved with compassion when he looks down and sees that people aren't even being paid fairly in the work that they're doing. That that moves God. God is affected by the injustice and all that goes on in the world. He is moved by that. And that's why one day he's going to move to take care of it. That's why even today he is moving this world to a point that's just fulfilling his plan and prophecy where he is getting ready To take care of it all. That's how much he cares about it. And he's full of mercy. A good way to differentiate grace and mercy is grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And can I just tell you, I'm so thankful for both. But I'm really thankful for God's mercy. Because I know as I look up my life, There were times where I deserved so much. And because God was merciful, he says, you know, Jeff, I'm going to take it a little easy on you. You know better. And God gave me a second chance and a third chance. Oh, yeah, and a fourth chance. God is a God of mercy. So then in verse 12, he ends this passage with this, and this is where we're going to end tonight. Above all, my brothers and sisters, Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall into judgment. When you and I go through tough times, one of the things that we are tempted to do is make deals with God. Make promises with God. God, if you just get me out of this, you know, I'll never miss church ever again in my life. Yeah, right. I'm a pastor. I would never say that, you know. And I got to be here. No, I'm just teasing. I I really want to be here. But 
sometimes we say wild things in the midst of dark days. We, we just, again, our mouth. And again, don't forget, one of the big themes in the book of James is we've got to watch what we say. We've got to be careful. We've got to allow the Spirit of God to control our mouth. And, and we've got to speak wisdom and all of that. So James has already covered this. But James here is reminding us of that because, again, in the heat of battle, those days when, man, it seems like everything in my life is going wrong, it's so easy for us, even as Christians, to say, now, God, let's make a deal here, okay? If, if, if you do this for me and this, then I'll, you know, and make all, and James saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's just live our life. And let's just live our life being patient with that long-term view that view of the final lap of the race when everything changes. And let's not be rash even in the midst of dark days. Let, let's be wise about what we say and let's don't start spouting off all these oaths and promises that we really probably have no intention to keep. We're just trying to look for some kind of lifeline for God to get us out of whatever situation we're in as quick as possible. James says, be careful. Be careful. Because then we do, we compound the problem. Because then, most times, we don't follow through with what we said we were going to do anyway, which then God's going to hold us accountable for. So James is basically saying, whenever we're tempted to start making deals and promises, probably good not to. In fact, an axiom that I have learned to live by in my life, I should never make a decision at a time in my life where I feel desperate. Desperate decisions are very rarely wise and good decisions. When you read your Bible, you find a lot of times where even the people of God went wrong is they made desperate decisions at desperate times that only made the situation worse. Sometimes what we need to do, though I know in our humanness, we don't want to do it. it. It's the last thing we want to do is just be patient, maybe, and ride it out just a little bit longer. And if God is certainly leading you to move or do something or make a decision, hey, I'm not here to stand in the way. I'm just simply saying, be careful in those desperate hours because most of the time, desperate decisions, in desperate times are rarely good and wise decisions. It's Satan who wants to back us into that corner and make us feel like there's no way out. It's desperation time. The, the game is about ready to end. And that's when we have to have the long-term view and we have to tell the devil, oh, devil, the game's not about to end. It's going into overtime. In fact, it's going to be so long, it lasts for eternity, devil. And you're going to be in the lake of fire during that overtime period. And I'm going to be in heaven with God for all of eternity. That's what we need to remind the devil of. So folks, I hope all of us can take these 12 verses of James to heart tonight. It can all be summed up in this way. Our Christian faith makes no sense without eternity. But with the certainty of eternity it all makes sense and how i live makes sense 
It might not make sense to my unsaved family members and my unsaved friends and my unsaved co-workers because they'd be looking at me like, what are you doing that for? When all they're looking for is, isn't this life all there is? But you and I are looking at it from a totally different perspective, a totally different value system. Our value system is based on eternity. It should never be based on just this earthly life. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you so much for just reminding us of these things. We, we all know them, and yet, Lord, so often we can get so caught up in the daily grind of life and living and just making it through each day that our perspective can get skewed and, and, and we can begin to focus on things without keeping that long-term view in mind. And God, help us. And thank you for reminding us that we're not living for just what's here and now. We're living for eternity. We're living for forever. And things are going to change one day, God, and we're going to change. And I look forward to that day when my Savior Jesus comes and changes this body into a glorified body. A body, Lord, that I'll be able to enjoy forever and ever. And Lord, where you're going to take us to a place where there's no more injustice, no no more pain, No more death, no more crying, no more disease. And Lord, where there will be perfect wholeness forever and ever. Thank you, Lord, for these promises. Encourage us with this truth, Lord, we pray throughout this week. And bring us all back next week, Lord, once again to encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for being so patient. Have a great week.